0: Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon. How are your legs feeling? (laughs) How's your back? Welcome to day two, (laughs) uh, the second full day of our Oban Sashin here at Awan Zendo. Uh, An opportunity for us to honor our ancestors and those that have passed from This life, as Roshi talked some about yesterday. And I found myself really appreciating her reminder that ancestors doesn't just mean our human ancestors, parents, grandparents. If you can go farther back than that, I can't. Um, But non human animals, plants, the cushions, all things even past selves. Last year, I invited back and spent time with a version of myself from some years ago that I was happy to be away from, uh, but nonetheless had a formative role in who I am today. A few months ago, Roshi instructed me, not invited, not offered, but instructed me to deliver a talk during this session on my relationship to the lineage. She also, I recently learned, forgot that she gave me that instruction (laughs) and that's okay. It's been a really full and busy few months for Roshi. You're all aware, I trust, that in about a day's time, my relationship to the lineage is going to change, to the Phoenix Cloud lineage, our sort of narrow lineage here at OAN, and to the whole lineage of Buddhas and ancestors throughout the universe in the 10 directions. My haircut will stay the same, don't worry about that. I'll wear more fabric on Sundays, and I'll probably complain about wearing more fabric on Sundays. I'll be ordained as a Soto Zen Buddhist priest of the novice rank. And you're welcome to understand that in whatever way speaks to you. Some people really care a lot about rank. Um, I used to be someone who cared a lot about rank not so much anymore. Still, this is going to happen and things will change. What's going to change though? And how will I change in relation to what changes? And how will what change change in relation to how I change? These are just some of the questions that have come up for me as tomorrow afternoon gets closer and closer and closer. But I don't want to spend the following tens of minutes speculating about what's going to change. That's quite frankly a waste of time and not all that interesting it turns out. I've tried it. Instead, I want to spend what follows reflecting on something central to our lineage and that has seen a change in me, namely confidence, trust, or faith. Some people prefer one of these words to the others. I am happy with all three and will use them interchangeably. And if you've been around for a while, one thing you know is that confidence has been at the center of my practice life for some time, and I often return to the topic during Sashim and the Sashin is no exception. So our lineage holder, Kobun Chino Otagawa Roshi, would often talk about trust, I'm told, about the importance of a limitless, ceaseless trust in ourselves. Without it, he says, you cannot sit zazen even for one minute. When I read this for the first time, And for the fifth time, and for the tenth time, I panicked because I wondered what I'd been doing for the past 14 years. I was convinced that if there was one thing I did not have, it was a limitless, ceaseless trust in myself. I've talked about this before. It turns out that I did have it, and I've always had it. And you have it too, by the way, even if you think you don't. But seeing that trust in ourselves and feeling it in our bodies, it turns out, is a little bit different. So I wonder what arises for you when you hear this expression from Coben. This practice requires that you have a limitless, ceaseless trust in yourself. What does trust described in that way look like to you? How does hearing it make you feel? For me, what used to arise was a lot about knowing. And I wonder if you understand what I mean by this. I remember hearing often, and I still hear it today, and I've said it myself, and sometimes I still say it. How do I know I can trust myself? How do I know I can trust you or you especially? How do I know that so-and-so is trustworthy? That such and such a thing is worthy of my trust? No, no, no. Immediately, there are feelings of distrust and suspicion of judgment and I start to see high mountains and big rivers appear. Here, trust is intimately bound up with knowledge of a certain sort. So intimately that knowledge about someone or something has become what you might call a necessary precondition on trust. You know what I mean by this. If I don't know you, how can I trust you? What do I know about some public figure, some news outlet, some political action committee? Does what I know justify my trusting their words, their articles, or their messaging? Trust here seems to need a firm, solid ground as support. Groundless trust, by contrast, we generally frown upon, gets laughed at. By others. You might even be afraid of trusting when you have no good reason to trust. This is all one way of thinking about the kind of thing trust is, but it's not the only way. Coburn said the following, forgetting yourself and trusting at this point feels the same to me, To forget oneself is, with knowledge, to give up your human way of perceiving things and give more room to see what is actually happening to your own self and to all other existences. When you forget your small self, the whole universe appears. These remarks, Coben tells us, were inspired by Dogen's final words on the subject of trust. Forget yourself. Forget yourself. And you might think that that turns the whole matter on its head. I don't think that. I think it sets the whole matter aright. Because how can you ever really know that you can trust someone or something? The emphasis in my asking this question is on the how, not on the no. There is a desire for your trust in something to be firmly anchored or grounded or rooted or supported. You can pick whatever verb and associated image resonates with you. But you need to remember that the worldly path is made of dreams, phantoms, and empty blossoms. So, where is this foundation so desperately desired? Can you show it to me? Can you point it out? I say all of this in part to remind myself of those days when my life felt as though it had fallen apart and there was little to nothing left save a reliable source of cat hair. You can hear him downstairs. I left or lost, I think is now a more accurate description, a career, 17 years in, and which had borne some not insignificant fruit. That career was, I believed with great conviction, the whole of who I was. Sometimes we talk about this being our identity, My identity is my job or my familial relations or my place in a community. And when you lose that, you start to ask yourself, who am I? Without that, who was I without a supposedly prestigious title and a place in a university machine? What was I now if not a failure? Another member, or better yet statistic, of the ever-enduring club for people whose lives had been ruined by alcoholism. I was barely a month sober following a terrible relapse and recently returned home from a treatment facility for severe substance abuse. I had to take this entrance exam, and they went through. They say, you scored a 27. That means you have severe substance abuse. I looked at it and went, duh. Why do you think I'm here? When I sat down across from Roshi, in the downstairs of this very building, and expressed a sincere desire to be her apprentice and the temple's teacher in training and my intent to send the required materials to the board of directors. That decision can plausibly be interpreted as insane. And I say that not hyperbolically, but literally. Yet what a gift that feeling of losing my identity was. What a shining display of confidence in myself in that moment. What else could it have been? The only plausible alternative I can see is utter foolishness. Tyshin, what are you talking about? No one in their right mind would accept you into that kind of role you must be disconnected from reality. Coben suggests that the first way to identify yourself as a Buddhist is to believe in yourself utterly. I might say believe in yourself completely. I could not see that that was what was happening at the time. I was not coming to believe. I already did believe. And I can see that now. Dogen tells us that only those who have the great capacity for genuine trust can enter this realm, that is the realm of all Buddhas. It cannot be reached by intellect, no less can those who have no trust or who lack wisdom know it. We would do well to notice the clear and direct statement that entering the realm of all Buddhas cannot be reached by the intellect. Why? As long as your brain is entangled, your knowledge is entangled with your own self-dynamic inside of your skin. And you are still a blind person, says Copen. This is not to say that the intellect and words and scriptures generally have no place in our practice, that they're verboten. Only that they're not where practice begins and ends for us. When you cling tightly to your narrow way of seeing things, yourself, others, the world in which you live and through which you move, you cannot see anything other than what you see bits and pieces of the whole that just happen to show up at your feet. Sometimes we mistakenly take these bits and pieces for the whole itself, it happens to all of us. And the message that Dogen and Coben offer us is not so much concerned with reminding us that we're in a boat and we can only see what it is we can see based on where our boat is in the ocean at that time. It's more concerned with encouraging us to flip the boat over and drown in the ocean. Maybe you don't want to hear that. Flip your boat and drown. That's okay. I'll offer something else. There's a talk by Shinryu Suzuki Roshi um, that has the title Supported From Within. I stumbled upon this talk early in practice, must have been 12, 11 years ago, Um, and I keep coming back to it. I'm surprised I don't have it memorized at this point. I read it over and over, and especially in the last year and a half, especially when times were tough. I would read it before and after sharing a current struggle with Roshi, where more often than not I would be in tears for part of the conversation. I seem to cry a lot these days, it's interesting. Financial challenges, including times when I felt that I had to choose between meeting my expenses on the one hand and fulfilling my obligations here at the temple on the other. Periods of food insecurity, that led me to standing in line month after month at the State College Food Bank. Intense moments of frustration born from not feeling supported by the Sangha at times like people were out to get me. There were a couple of times where walking away from all of this seemed like a live possibility. I mention these things not to impress you with the fact that I'm still sitting here and I really don't want your praise. But I mention them to impress upon you that a willingness to continue practicing comes from somewhere other than pleasant external circumstances. It's really easy to continue practicing when we have a day like we had yesterday where it was unseasonably warm and the sun was shining and the forest is lit up in beautiful colors and you walk around and it's peaceful and quiet and everyone is smiling. It's a lot harder to keep practicing when things aren't that way, but you can do it. Suzuki Roshi says that our spirit as Zen practitioners is this, we are protected from the inside always, incessantly, so we do not expect any help from the outside. And Coben too, reminds us that our trust in ourselves, in others, does not depend on outside circumstances. We're not concerned with some reward. It only goes one direction. For us Americans... Hearing these expressions of Zen spirit can all too easily invite comparison with the self-made individual who, through near-sheer grit and personal willpower, pulls themselves up by their own proverbial bootstraps. You can understand them in that way if you want. But here's another way. What does it mean to not expect any help from the outside? It certainly does not mean not accepting help. That would be insane, and lest we forget, impossible. What does a faith in oneself feel like that sets to one side how things are outside of this skin bag? From this one's experience, there's a feeling of acceptance first. Acceptance of whatever appears, knocks at your door, lands in your lap. This is an acceptance that sits comfortably but in a rather small space between abject resignation and naive optimism, free of evaluation of what appears as good or bad, right or wrong. Worthy of praise or blame, and so on. I am here. This is the way it is right now. You can say this to yourself in these moments where you need to practice acceptance. I do. Can you guess what follows? this acceptance? It's not something spectacular, in a sense. It does not call attention to itself, shine brightly in a way that dazzles those nearby and far away. It's not something easily noticeable. You need to really pay attention to see it. Sometimes we call it a determination. Determination. Sometimes we see it by way of a gentle smile and a single step of the foot. The Song of the Jewel Mirror Awareness says, it's bright just at midnight, but it doesn't appear at dawn. It acts as a guide for beings. Its use removes all pains. It is like facing a jewel mirror Form and image behold each other. You are not it. In truth, it is you. Naturally real yet inconceivable, it is not within the province of delusion or enlightenment. With causal conditions, time and season, quiescently it shines bright. In its fineness it fits into spacelessness. In its greatness it is utterly beyond location it's not within the reach of feeling or discrimination how could it admit of consideration and thought we might add to this string of couplets it's a lot like pornography i can't tell you what it is but i know it when i see it I can tell you that I experience what it is that is Zen spirit, but I can't communicate it to you in a succinct pair of sentences. I can just keep pointing and hopefully something gets through. It's like being embraced by the okesa, the great robe of liberation. That may be all I can say about what comes with that acceptance of the way things are right now. The mention of the limitations of words allows me to start to bring this talk to a close. By shifting away from traditional scriptures and texts and towards the late writer Joan Didion, Didion writes in her classic essay, Slouching Towards Bethlehem, that the youth in San Francisco in 1967 fed back exactly what is given them because they do not believe in words. Words are for typeheads, and a thought which needs words is just one more of those ego trips. Their only proficient vocabulary is in the society's platitudes. As it happens, she continues, I am still committed to the idea that the ability to think for oneself depends upon one's mastery of the language, and I am not optimistic about children who will settle for saying to indicate that their mother and father do not live together, that they come from a broken home. They are 16, 15, 14 years old, younger all the time, an army of children waiting to be given the words. This is an idea that I am all too familiar with, the necessity of mastering language, that oneself and others only need the words with which to express themselves. Then all will be bright and all will be luminous, Only it won't, really. A great facility with words sometimes creates a kind of lonely luminosity. Words become walls, ways in which we keep others from getting too close and protect ourselves from all that is fearful or uncertain. Words, in a seemingly unshakable reliance on them, obstructs meeting things as it is. Much later, the 4th of October, 2004, in fact, following the sudden death of her husband and during a prolonged hospitalization for her daughter, Didion would write, I have been a writer my entire life. As a writer, even as a child, long before what I wrote began to be published, I developed a sense that meaning itself was resident in the rhythms of words and sentences and paragraphs, a technique for withholding whatever it was I thought or believed behind an increasingly impenetrable polish. The way I write is who I am or have become. Yet this is a case in which I wish I had, instead of words and their rhythms, a cutting room. Equipped with an AVID, a digital editing system on which I could touch a key and collapse the sequence of time. Show you simultaneously all the frames of memory that come to me now. Let you pick the takes, the marginally different expressions, the variant readings of the same lines. This is a case in which I need more than words to find the meaning. This is a case in which I need whatever it is I think or believe to be penetrable, if only for myself. What a difference 40 years can affect coupled with the insight that life changes fast. Life changes in the instant. You sit down to dinner and life as you know it ends. The question of self-pity, as she puts it. We start to see ourselves and this life a little differently when we stop withholding, hiding behind an increasingly impenetrable polish. Letting ourselves be fully present to ourselves, the entirety and fullness of each meeting, moment after moment, sometimes we call this the whole catastrophe, is a great gift. The greatest gift we can ever receive in this life. Yet it requires great effort, great courage to give yourself that gift. Only you can give it, really. Only you can give yourself the opportunity to penetrate the trappings of your ego. Vulnerability is what I'm talking about here. The great gift of a willingness to be vulnerable, to be genuine, to be authentic. When you do this, When you get out of your own way, sometimes you can feel the entire universe rushing forth to show you who you are, someone who has had, from the beginning, a limitless, ceaseless trust in themselves. Thank you.